Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm here with Haven Pell again, who is the pundificator on his blog and his other media outlets. And we are going to discuss winners and losers in 2019 and a couple of bold predictions for 2020. So Haven, how are you doing? Just got back from Los Angeles? Just got back from Los Angeles and deep in the throes of the year-end stories that editors make their reporters write. And look backs, look forwards. It's an interesting lot. So we tasked ourselves with coming up with a couple of winners and losers and then a couple of thoughts for 2020. I'll start. I have a couple of winners. I'm going to start with the first one, which to me is the new retail elephant in the room, and that is Amazon, who I'm describing as the Category 5 in American consumerism. To me, this was the year that a lot of different components of their strategy really came into the fold. I have some experience with them from the publishing standpoint. Most people know they started out selling books and bled into the actual publishing world. I published my book a year ago and to watch them take over on that front and I think really squeeze out Barnes & Noble and others has been interesting to see. I think the emergence of Amazon Prime has been front and center on everyone's minds now. They've basically wedged themselves into the entertainment world. Their web services program is probably, in many ways, if they spun that out, it's the biggest company in the world by itself in many ways and has a lot of different impacts on Federal Express and UPS and other shippers. And that's not even getting into the fact that to Amazon, something is really to, in many ways, replace Google if the American consumer or any consumer is going out and looking to acquire something. To me, 2019 is really where the rubber met the road. And while they have some issues as it relates to sort of their use of data, privacy, and those types of things, it feels like they've really hit the ground running this year and they're on their way up even more. I can't see anything stopping them. I think it's a very interesting pick. I would love to have a separate offline conversation about your book publishing experience with them. I'm thinking about doing the same thing myself and would definitely value your recommendations. I am a Amazon Prime user, both in terms of shipping and in terms of entertainment. I'm certainly aware of the web services. They are now in a battle with, I think, Microsoft because they lost a federal contract that was hugely valuable. And they are accusing the president of putting his thumb on the scale because he doesn't like Jeff Bezos's Washington Post newspaper. It is interesting to see that Amazon, by revenue, is the 13th largest in the world, whereas Walmart is the first largest. Amazon's revenue is about 40% of Walmart, yet Amazon has over 10 billion in profits, whereas Walmart only has six. I think that Amazon is absolutely, it's omnipresent in my demographic, and I'm guessing yours, And in that same demographic, I don't think Walmart exists at all. I never even think about it. And what makes me wonder is, would another set of commentators have picked Walmart instead of Amazon? Interesting point. I think that we're not here to make investment prognostications. And so I think whether one is a, the difference between the two is it relates to being good companies versus good stocks to own. We'll let other people kind of figure that part out. It's an interesting point. 
Walmart doesn't touch my life here in New York City or even in many ways in the Northeast, yet it is a behemoth. And their digital strategy is something that many people are watching. Amazon has sort of worldwide domination in their sites, it seems like. Whereas Walmart, I think, is looking for, I think domination is probably too strong a word, but certainly extreme competitive advantages within the world that they live in. And they're a little bit more real estate based, I think, than Amazon is, although I think that gap is closing too. It's a good point. You know, I think the different people with the different prism on things might really look at Walmart as, as a bit of stuff to call them a sleeping giant, but maybe an underrepresented giant. I look at Amazon and say, geez, they're doing a lot of the same types of things. They're doing it in a more asset light capability. They're taking on a lot of different initiatives. And it feels like in many ways, they're sort of Walmart 2.0, but that could all change very quickly. It certainly is a worthy pick as one of the best of 2019. Right. So my second winner, to sort of take this in a bit more of an offbeat mode, is uh, Kylie Jenner, who under the radar in many ways has developed such an empire that she sold her business in 2019, 51% of it to Cody for $600 million, which means she's got another almost $600 million still on her balance sheet. And for most of us who are of a certain age or older, or even maybe even younger than us, we look at that and say, where did this come from? How did this happen? And what does it portend for the future? I analyzed a little bit to say that this is really, to me, the apex of influencer branding, which are two words that mean in many ways very little by themselves and even less when stitched together. This is someone, Kylie Jenner, who's part of the Kardashian industrial complex, I guess I would call it. She doesn't sing. She doesn't act. She doesn't dance that we know of. And she's stitched her name to a cosmetic and fragrance business that the fact of the matter is they're doing something right because $600 million for 51% of a company, the Shark Tank guys aren't doing that. This is a real company. And it sort of really goes to the effect of, of really knowing how pop culture works. I see that there's a lot of talk about income disparity. I think there's a real sort of popularity or curating disparity. If you're in that top 0.0001% and have control over your digital life, you can make serious money and move mountains. But for a lot of people who are well south of that, I think there's a lot of just a lot of sort of loose gears turning and transmission issues such that in many ways, they're the product as opposed to actually going out and making money on things. But to go back to it, I don't see how you can have a much better year than Kylie Jenner had by selling her company, the majority stake in her company to a well-funded group who seems to know what they're doing in that line of work. And she still has a big piece of it to go. That is a terrific pick also, but I would have to tell you that you've moved me into a Venn diagram of categories that are huge weaknesses for me. Pop culture. My playlist includes Peter, Paul, and Mary, except I don't actually have a playlist, but if it did, it would include Peter, Paul, and Mary. So that's one of the circles of the Venn diagram. And the second one is cosmetics. Toothpaste and deodorant are at the outer edge of my cosmetics purchases. So that's the second one. And the third is all things Kardashian. That is a circle that I try to ignore to as great a degree as I can. But one thing that I observed that was really interesting on the question of influencers and so forth, and that is 
Kylie Cosmetics has 12 employees, which suggests that the valuation of the company was $100 million per employee. Now, I'm sort of familiar with the idea of engineering companies, software engineering companies selling for a multiple per engineer, but I've never heard of anything like $100 million per employee. Wonder if it's a record? I think it says a lot about what you're talking about, about influencers and how much leverage there is in that idea, and also about the virtuality of companies. Obviously, what they have been doing is manufacturing by outsourcing and probably in many ways distributing by outsourcing. So they are just the brand with those 12 people. Imagine that kind of leverage. Oh, it's crazy. The one other example where I think you've got kind of a $100 million per employee type of metrics might be Instagram when Facebook bought them. And that's turned out to be a magnificent transaction for Facebook. I think Instagram is now one of the real drivers of revenue for that company. So maybe Kylie's taking a bit of a page out of that hymnal, although two vastly different businesses. But to be sure, to be able to leverage that kind of influence and popularity into something that monetizable, 2019 was good for her. (laughs) Boy, it sure was. Let's keep going. Maybe we'll get named in 2020. That'd be good. So two losers on my list. The first one was the Federal Reserve. And I look at that as something where I guess I come into the world where I sort of view the Federal Reserve as that independent arbiter of sort of being able to move around the federal funds rate as events warrant, being an independent judge of economic data and being somewhat immune to political pressure. And in 2019, I feel like that's the year that President Trump found the cookie jar and in a sense has been able to use the Federal Reserve in an oblique way to be able to put interest rates in a vein that he thinks are going to be useful either in terms of stock market performance or in terms of other components, whether it's helping to support his tariff moves or what have you. And that to me is a loss. I'm a little bit concerned that having the Federal Reserve become a much more political tool than it has been regarded as the past. And and this may be a component where I'm naive because whether it's been used as a political tool by presidents or whether the federal chairman have had their own aspirations and the different determinations that they make, I never really thought of that that way, but maybe that's been the case. I think this year is the year that politicization of the Federal Reserve has come to the fore. and, And I think that's a negative. I agree with you. And it particularly at the time, it comes right on the heels of Paul Volcker's death. And I think, at least as I would observe it, and I don't think of myself as either a Fed watcher or a Fed expert, I would nonetheless say that Paul Volcker was about as independent of elected officials as anybody that I can remember in my lifetime. So to see him, to record his death, and to see what happened to the Fed is in 2019 is it certainly is a juxtaposition. I find myself in sort of the cross my fingers realm. My hope is that the reality of political intervention is less than we think it is. Clearly, the president tweets about it. He wants to make sure people understand that he has his foot on the neck of the chairman. And whether that's really true or not is something they don't want me to know, and I haven't figured it out. 
My thought has been over the course of the last dozen years that the response to the mortgage meltdown was generally appropriate. At the end of the Bush administration and the beginning of the Obama administration, they took the view that the thing that was most important was to take the economy out of free fall. And I think that was the right priority. Now, today, politically, we all want to hear, or many people want to hear, how come no bankers went to jail? How come this didn't happen? How come that didn't happen? Well, I think because some very sane and thoughtful people felt that the better view was to make sure that we could not crash the plane and then deal with the rest of it at another time. That process made me wonder whether we now have a triple mandate for the Federal Reserve. Are they required to keep inflation low? Are they required to keep employment high? And are they required to keep the stock market up? The first two, there are people who disagree with the dual mandate, but the third one would be viewed as totally outside the realm of their responsibility, except by politicians who understand that elections are easier if things are going well. I do wonder, in looking at a crummy year for them, whether it is going to be possible for central bank policies to revert to a pre-2008 universe, and if so, when that might happen. With the election coming up and the various signals coming out from the Federal Reserve and from the prognosticators, et cetera, it's tough to tell. It certainly bears watching, which leads me to my second loser of 2019, and that is the concept of online privacy. And to me, this is the year that people discovered that they are the product and that there are deep concerns uh, emanating from what Facebook does with your information, what the Russians could do if they purchased your information and wanted to send ads vis-a-vis -vis political elections. What does Google do with your information? Whom are they selling their data to? Up to people being concerned having an Alexa from Amazon sitting there hearing every conversation. What does that translate into, especially in an AI world? This was the year where the public's trust in big tech has been, I think, finally questioned. And I think the, the major ramifications are that the legislature, national and otherwise, are starting to take a look into what is appropriate and not appropriate. We're already seeing that Europe is taking a much harder line stance on this. And a lot of these companies are are not used to dealing with a government that is, whether it's at the EU level or at the country level, that is really strident on that front in terms of theoretically protecting their citizens. And I think this is the year, it's not really stopping a lot of people's habits to be sure, but I think this is also the year that not only, you know, the people in 2019 that people discovered sort of online privacy issues with their internet habits, my sub prediction for 2020 is we may have a significant result, not just with the election, but concept that I think is going to come to the fore is from a trust perspective is when a major celebrity or even sort of a high profile citizen is taken down to earth with a fake internet or, you know, a fake picture or a fake video. I think the concept of deep fake, which is a thing in pornography, is going to reverberate down to the, I guess, the real people. And I could see there being a major issue where someone has been part of a doctored photo or video, has had their reputation destroyed, and the concept of trust as it currently stands within the 
within the internet world, within the online world, I think that's all, I think there's going to be cause for review. So a lot to unpack there. <laughs> well, there's an interesting sort of little funny sidelight that came to mind as you were talking, because you mentioned the European Union having regulations on privacy. And there's another jurisdiction that is making a regulatory effort, and that's California. And there are many people, particularly those who are on the right side of the spectrum, who think that all things California are dreadful, understand that. But it is certainly an example of federalism. And I think there are many people who would say, oh, isn't that nice? The states are standing up on their hind legs and doing something when they don't see the federal government acting. And it's always seemed to me that for any law, the more local it is, the better it is, because people are going to be more likely to trust their nearby government rather than their faraway government. And so it's an interesting trend to see states becoming active in this arena. To go in the complete opposite direction, we also forgot about China and Hong Kong on that front, where you see internet capability completely shut down from large, more monolithic governments. There's a lot that we've taken for granted here in the United States as it relates to internet freedom. And I think the the anaconda of regulation is going to start looking for the sleeping bunny of the internet world, the online world, et cetera, from a variety of different state, city, federal, multinational forms. And it's going to be interesting to see how that percolates. It definitely is. And every jurisdiction, every government wants to defend its borders. And borders have come to mean something quite different than they once did. Yes, it was once a line in which nobody else's army was supposed to cross, but the internet isn't an army, disease isn't an army, travel isn't an army. And so how does a jurisdiction protect its border and what does that mean and what should one expect? So China obviously is able to protect that border. I'm sure you're getting notices of websites changing their privacy policies thanks to the new California law. So they're trying to protect their border. And it exceeds my ability to predict what direction it's going. But I do think it's gotten worse. My techie software engineer son has long ago given up on privacy. And he says that the only defense is to be less interesting than the other 325 million people in this country or 7 billion people in the world. And then there's so much data that maybe nobody will look at mine. That's all well and good unless you decide you want to run for president or something, in which case you suddenly became a lot more interesting. I think that this is a grist for another discussion, but I think there's going to be a world where certainly everything you've done is going to be recordable. And then every time you go looking for a job, the AI is going to sift through the internet looking for everything that you have to mitigate any sort of personality risk that may exist. And there may be a point where people just say, okay, at some point you have to be able to live your life. And the pendulum may swing back on sort of that over criticalization of personal data, but we're not there yet. And I'm sort of envisioning a pendulum that hasn't gone anywhere close to that far out. You hear stories about HR departments that disqualify people from ageist reasons because they use two spaces after a period instead of one. That's a Oh that, my God, is that ageist? I do that. I do it too. And Uh oh. 
Yeah, it's a thing. And extrapolate that to even more pernicious criteria. Anyway, when the computers take over, it's a little bit scary, although I think that hopefully the human being component of it's going to stick with this. Well, it's a good pick for one of the worst of 2019. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, three quick predictions, and we'll sort of take these quickly. I'm a big thinker that given where climate change is in the national debate and the lack of discussion around nuclear power, I think nuclear power is going to become a major focus in 2020. We have Greta Thunberg and her rise to stardom on the basis of climate change. We've got basic terminology differences because the idea of climate warming versus climate change has been called into debate. You've got wildfires in California and Australia. You've got different weather patterns. And to me, one of the real components is the idea that energy is, while it's cheap, it's not costless. The idea that nuclear has been completely sort of put in such a bad light in a public perspective up until now, I think that's going to start changing. The way I kind of think of it too is that there really haven't been a lot of major technological moves forward in the last 30 years as it relates to nuclear reactors because no one's building them. I think that's going to be called into question going forward. I certainly hope so. And it does seem as if it would be extremely helpful to achieving a climate solution. And it has some downsides. It has some downsides in terms of fear that are probably greater than the actuality. Trying to think a little bit about why do climate activists oppose it? And I understand that it's easy to say Chernobyl and it's easy to say Three Mile Island and it's easy to say Fukushima and those are scary things. But is it getting to the realm of the perfect is the enemy of the good, that we can't have anything that has even the slightest flaw? I sometimes wonder whether activists of all variety actually want to solve the problem. Would they prefer to have the problem than to solve it? Because it would be very understandable in terms of a motivation, if the problem gets solved, I'm unemployed. And there's nothing for me to advocate anymore. If we put a check mark next to this or that problem, then the advocacy goes away. I sometimes in a cynical moment feel that that's at play. But I, yes, I would root for nuclear power. The uh, next prediction really comes from something we alluded to just a second ago. I think the Tokyo 2020 Olympics are going to shine a very glaring light on the China-Hong Kong tensions just by virtue of proximity. The sort of shuffling of Hong Kong back to China in the next 25 years which is obviously a major geopolitical event that's coming to us in a gradual sense, has come into the consciousness of the world in 2019 via the Hong Kong protests. I think the 2020 Olympics are going to really put an emphasis on it. I have no idea what that means exactly, but I think with the world watching not too far away from where these protests are occurring, I see a real... I don't know if a tinderbox is the right word, but I see the potential for a major event to take place at that point. That's certainly the major sporting events. And I think of the Super Bowl as a major event, but the Olympics is more. The World Cup, FIFA, is a major event. And I think that imagining that there will be some effort at attention getting in Tokyo is a very reasonable suggestion. The Japanese do police pretty well, and they have fewer 
constraints against stopping things before they happen than, for example, we do. So that may be some reason for optimism. But clearly, it's a huge stage for making a point on some subject. And and I can see exactly why that might be, why you might pick Hong Kong. I suppose, sadly, it could be a moment where terrorism could also use that as a stage. I wonder the International Olympic Committee, FIFA, large sporting governing bodies are so geopolitical in where they award the games and the whole scope of everything is so big. I almost wonder whether they should be NGOs, whether FIFA or the IOC should be somehow have some sort of status at the United Nations, because it's such a big geopolitical deal for seemingly private organizations. Interesting idea. I like that. I've got two more pop culture-y types of things in play. The first is having just seen the latest Star Wars and sort of having an eh component to it. I had a lot to that I could grab onto as a fanboy, but the same time I came out of it saying, you know what, I need a real breather. And then as a fan of Marvel Comics going way back, I feel like I need a breather on that as well. So my prediction is that while Disney is not going to let those two IP cannons get left unshot in 2020, I think this is the year where the American public kind of sits back and says, okay, let's see what we have here that's not Marvel and Star Wars. And you might see a, a step back or two maybe from the big numbers that these two these two behemoths have produced for Disney. I think that it's going to be a retooling year as the American public just sort of gets over the feast that they had in 2019. Well, again, you've moved into sort of more of the pop culture realm, which we know from the Venn diagram is not a strength for me. But what I really appreciate is the warning that this could happen because I have a six-year-old grandson who I'm going to have to do some serious therapy with if they take away Star Wars and superheroes. We're going to have to do some big work with him because that's the two primary things in his life. Yeah, I imagine they're not going to take them away. And Disney Plus has these two things as fodder. They're not going to let the content get away from them. But I think I just feel like the American public's going to say, we've had enough for a little bit. Let's check back in a little while. Oh, I almost forgot one thing. And that was sort of prediction slash loser. My poor New York Knicks have consistently proven over the course of the last 20 years that they they can't seem to put one foot in front of the other. And I'm not particularly hopeful, certainly not this year and not for next year either. It doesn't seem like they're going to be going in any great direction. Uh, as a big Duke guy, I'm hopeful that R.J. Barrett can be worthy of the number three pick and be the all-star we hope his talent supports. But in the meantime, yikes, lean times at the garden. <laughs> lean times at the garden. Okay, well, that segues into my picks, which are going to try to mirror yours with two of the best, two of the worst, and three predictions. So building off the Knicks, I'm going to pick something that is frankly pretty small in the world scale, and that is Washington has had a pretty good run in sports championships in recent years. The Nationals obviously won the World Series, and we had decades of no baseball at all. My children have moved away and they moved away before the Nats came here. So their entire childhood had no baseball in Washington. For those who live in this town, the Nationals win was a pretty big deal. 
We are still having the afterglow of the Caps winning the Stanley Cup in 2018. And so that says another contribution to a sports town. I don't really follow basketball as much. And sadly, I don't follow the Mystics as much, but they too won a championship. And so it's been a good year sports-wise for Washington. But I don't want you to feel bad about the Knicks because we have Dan Snyder and Dan Snyder. Here's the scary part. I'm a Redskins fan. So this is triply painful. I've gotten the double barrel. (laughs) Well, if I have time after the therapy that will be required for my six-year-old grandson as a result of diminishing Star Wars, I'll try to help you to dislike Dan Snyder even more effectively than probably you already do. (laughs) I don't even know where to start with them. I have to go back to 1982 and watch John Riggins' videos to get through. There you go. Well, that's good (laughs) self-help. So my second good thing about 2019, geez, it's got to be the stock market. If you are interested in that topic and or if your financial life depends on it, a year that is up more than 20 percent, indeed, maybe for the S&P hovering towards 30 percent. 2019 was one heck of a year, and that was definitely a positive. It's in coming on the back of 2018 that was pretty average to negative. And I think it just goes to show that, to me, a lot of the forecasting that takes place, just be better off putting the cooking channel on. There's larger things at play, lots of factors that are seen and unseen that end up pushing things where they go. And while it can be useful to try to predict, ultimately, to base your investing life off of those types of forecasts, I think is it can be specious, at least in the short term. Just so many things that can happen. Sure can. There's a subject for another day. But for 2019, the stock market was my friend. Okay, worst of 2019. My temptation is to say the ascendancy of populism on both left and right in the United States and in some other parts of the world as well. I am not disappointed about the protests in Hong Kong, and I suppose to some degree that could be described as populism or at least anti-authoritarianism. So that is a positive. But another thing that didn't disappoint me was the idea of the Brexit vote and the election in England maybe sending a reminder to the leadership of the European Union that they might have pushed a little too hard. And it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if they took a moment for self-reflection as to what their contribution to making Brexit and the election and the, all the shenanigans that went along or went on in the UK for the last three years They might have lit that fuse. Now, obviously, it was exploited politically, but it would be lovely if there were some self-reflection on that. I think that that is one of the worst things. And I think it is so in part because if you really look at what's going on in the world, the long-term progress is extraordinary. I mean, the number of people lifted out of poverty is The rate seems almost to be accelerating. Is it perfect? No. There's inequality. Yes. Is it extraordinary? Yes. Would we like it to continue? I would. I just finished reading a wonderful book called Enlightenment Now 
by Steven Pinker, who's a Harvard professor. And he talks about all the good things that are going on in the world that we never hear from from politicians. And there was another one that I like that's on a similar vein called Better Than It Looks by Greg Easterbrook. And both are the sort of book that one ought to have on your desk for any moment of speech writing or article writing where you need optimistic statistics. So my worst of 2019, because it's harmful to people who need help, is the rise of populism, both left and right. I couldn't agree more. I think the bifurcation of mindset that that describes in many ways irrationally so to the point where people are deluged by information yet unable to process it and then making decisions based on what economists would probably call irrational self-interest or something along those lines. It's leading us into a different direction. And maybe, hopefully from an optimistic prediction perspective, maybe this election is the one where people sort of learn their lessons from what's happened in the last three to four years and take a step back and really hopefully think before pulling the lever or voicing an opinion or something like that. My forays into Twitter, et cetera, taking a look at the world on that front would lead me to think otherwise, given the discourse, but I'm hopeful. Well, that's going to lead into my other worst of 2019, and that goes to the category of politics and political professionals. The 2019, the ratio of doing things to scoring political points plummeted yet again. And the idea that people don't want you to know about, and that is how much money is being raised off of political controversy. For example, the impeachment, both sides are raising enormous sums of money from people are believing every word that they're saying about how important all of this is and how much they can fuel it up. The idea that there are voters whose minds can be changed is unfortunately in decline. And so you end up with elections in which turning your base out is the important thing. And for those who try to be thoughtful or who care about solving a problem, it is not helpful to if there is so much noise about opposing this or that simply because the other people are the other people. So we have endless fighting in 2019, and we ran a trillion-dollar deficit. I throw into that the concept that the political industrial complex, the consultants, the pundits, et cetera, they've got a lot to prove in 2020 because the track records for the last three years have been poor. Go back to the Trump election, which shocked everybody. You've got, in many ways, even the UK election. You've got a bunch of other ones that whatever the zeitgeist is out there, that consultant class that's paid to diagnose and act on it is missing it. I think it's going to be interesting to see what 2020 brings on that front, especially in an era where as you say, people have sort of split off into their own mindsets and you're either CNN or you're Fox to be able to sort of course through and measure what the country is thinking and apply that to the electoral map. I think there are going to be a lot of people who are trying to struggle with data and what people are reporting. And if it, consultants can't make some hay on that this time around, I think it'll be we could see a real sea change in that industry. Sadly, that leads into a prediction for 2020. 
And I've come to believe after several years of endeavoring to write year-end predictions and being spectacularly wrong most of the time, I thought, well, okay, maybe you could predict things that are less measurable, and then you wouldn't be wrong. You might add something. So my first prediction is that the getting elected industry, and exactly the people that you were just describing, is going to have record revenues in 2020. The amount of money that is going to be spent on our elections, and now they're exporting their talent to other countries, England for one, Israel for another, and various Central European countries, that is going to be a big growth industry in 2020, which will be good for them, but not for us. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think when in doubt, people are going to spend. I think the irony being that in the Trump election, Trump was way overspent by the chattering classes on the Democratic side, and it didn't work. But when in doubt, you spend. Because if indeed what you're talking about, and I agree with this as well, the turning out the base component is as vital as it is, you got to do it. And Mike Bloomberg became mayor of New York by spending and making it happen. And it's probably what's going to be what drives a lot of the thinking on the Democratic side. I think it also alludes to a real sort of trial as to how important the online marketing efforts are. I made a point at some point way back that Trump's use of Twitter is sort of this generation's Nixon JFK debates in terms of sort of the next leap forward in the use of media for political purposes. I'm revising that a little bit on the theory that sort of the money poured into online marketing uh, to drive votes. I think it's something that's going to be big, measurable and important, but it's unclear what the effectiveness is actually going to be. Well, Alas, it will be in not only will we see in 2020, it will be vigorously inflicted upon us. And uh, <laughs> right. we probably won't be able to avoid it. So, prediction number two for 2020 the value of thoughtful writing and editing will continue to decline as barriers to entry into the field diminish. It is an easy thing to put up websites and organize the things that you and I both do. And unfortunately, it's wonderful that you and I can do them. It's too bad that other people have figured out the same thing. So the value with the lower barriers to entry is the value is going to decline as more and more people who frankly don't have that much to say are able to be a part of it. The difficult thing for that is there are some areas in which none of us, or at least not me, are smart enough to do anything other than rely on a trusted expert. And it's harder to find those. It's like panning for gold. There's a lot of chaff from which to try to find some wheat. And it is difficult to know because everybody has spell check. Everybody People can write a complete sentence and you make a decision based on, oh, well, I guess that sounds good. I don't know. And it would be lovely if we had something that we could rely upon. I think that this is particularly exacerbated for both TV and newspapers because they will have to stir up more frenzy just to survive. So will that help us to be wiser people and better decision makers? I don't think so. I think it will contribute to that which will guide the political debates, which are probably going to be fairly low-end 
topics. I don't know what the topics will be that will divide people, but they will be there. And so I think that that is a prediction that is a bit of a disappointment. Well, it's scary. We need longer form, thoughtful reporting and commentary on a lot of topics. And what you're predicting, and I'm afraid I I agree, is that we're going in the wrong direction. The big part, too, that I agree with is that the real smart people who should be thinking about these things are going to have their attention diverted to more profitable endeavors. If you can't eat by going in and producing thoughtful sort of either papers or writing or thinking around topics that allow you to support two ideas within the same headspace and debate and come out the other side, that doesn't pull us away from that sort of bifurcation between conservative and liberal thinking, and it doesn't lead to anything productive. I'm hopeful that, again, on pendulum swinging, that you know, with the different types of views that are so stratified that there's going to be a natural sort of trend back to the middle where people have an appetite for people who can, can think about things in more than one dimension. So I hope my little disagreement there comes to pass because what you paint, when which I certainly see, that's not great. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I guess what I'm saying is in so many ways, it's really similar to your Kylie Jenner prediction. And that is this sort of, it's certainly not harmful that she created such a wonderful cosmetics company and is now worth so much, but it's probably not the most important thing in the world. It is definitely one that is going to get a great deal of attention and there are going to be many followers and so forth. So I guess it leads to my third prediction, which is in some ways optimistic, but are we going to really get any benefit out of the optimism? So the prediction is the things that we don't hear about or read about will continue to be more important than the things we do hear about and do read about. We will hear and read about things that sell newspapers or capture eyeballs or get attention like Kylie Jenner, but those will not be the most important things, which are that the world continues to be a vastly better place than it ever was before, and it is improving for more and more people as they get lifted out of poverty. The sad thing is that we won't get to feel good about it. It's a certainly an overtone that is always out there. I feel like there are, I mean, most people have this sort of conspiracy theory component too, that there are things underneath the surface that are happening that we're not hearing about that for both positive and negative that just aren't seeing the light of day. And I end up watching financial coverage by virtue of being at work at it. And the news that we get on that seems to be three or four levels removed from what's actually happening to me, or it's late, or these are things that have been sort of baked in well in advance. And I hope that maybe it's sort of a journalistic evolution or something like that, that we get back into those deeper conversations and that we're able to unearth those things that are happening that we're not hearing about. And as you said, there's such an incredible pace of improvement worldwide that is completely not being talked about. And it's unfortunate because I think that those positive examples and that positivity could be very helpful in sort of pulling this country out of its uh, sort of its current mind space, which is, I would say, somewhere between funk and confusion. To get positive and to get back into believing in the upward trend would be a nice thing at this point. 
Well, maybe that's a good goal for us in 2020. Maybe that's yours and my small mission to try to bring out some more of the good things that are going on and at least temper the endless barrage of the bad things that we get told about. And that gives me a moment to say thank you for including me in these podcasts. This is our last recording session of 2019. Thank you for including me. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And I am very much looking forward to continuing in 2020, perhaps along those lines. Likewise, it's been a terrific experience and one that I'm excited to continue. So we'll do that. Happy New Year, Fraser. Likewise, Haven. And you have been listening to the Wealth Actually podcast. This is Fraser Rice, and we've also had Haven Pell on. We recounted our winners and losers of 2019 and came up with a couple of bold predictions, hopefully. In the meantime, have a great 2020, and we'll see you next year. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.